Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Workplace Revolution and I'm your host Sile Bolani. Women in business and venture capitalism. Today I'm going to be in conversation with Brittany Winters about her journey as a woman in business and how she was able to secure venture capital to fund her business and where that journey has taken her. Brittany, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. So for the purpose of our listeners, won't you just please talk us through your journey, how your career got started and what led you, you know, to being a woman in business? Yeah, so I feel like I've had uh, multiple different careers. Um, so I, I'm originally from Houston, Texas, and mm-hmm. I went to undergrad at Stanford University and I majored in engineering. Um, I decided maybe a little too late in the game that I didn't actually want to be an engineer, but I think it was still a solid foundation. Mm. But uh, nonetheless, I went on to uh, obtain my first job working on Wall Street. I did that for about two years as an analyst, and then and that was in New York City. Mm-hmm. And then for personal reasons, decided to move back home to Houston. So around that time, I got uh, custody of my younger sister, and I just thought it would be easier to have, you know, family support. So moved back home and started doing uh, management consulting. Okay. Through uh, that career, um, I got staffed on a project at a Shell Oil Company. Mm-hmm. And I loved the project that I was working on. They extended me a full-time offer. And so um, I went to work for Shell. Mm-hmm. I'd always wanted to pursue an MBA. So while I was at Shell, I applied and and then uh, got into Harvard Business School. So I ended up taking a leave of absence uh, for my job, which they actually sponsored uh, the tuition cost. So that was definitely a blessing. Um, And then after graduating, I went back to Shell for about three years. But I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Mm. And I started like really feeling like I was getting too comfortable. I, I I felt that if I didn't like leave at that point that I would Mm. never do it because, Mm. you know, once you keep getting promoted or just having certain experiences and then you start having kids, you're less, well, I thought I would be less likely to take big risks like that. Right. So I decided to do it. I already, I had been working on this business plan since, um, I was a student, um, in my MBA program. So Mm. I had it ready. Of course I had to like polish it and refine it, but it was something that I had always, I had already been working on. Mm. So as a as a black woman, an African-American woman in Wall Street, what was that experience like for you? Because from I mean, from a South African context, you know, the, the black experience within corporate can be quite a disheartening and traumatic experience because of racism and discrimination and, you know, just general inequality. What was your experience like? Yeah, I was very fortunate um, to work with a really great group of people. I mean, of course, there were there were issues. Like, I felt like I couldn't bring my whole self to work. Mm. Um, and I think just over time, I've gotten more comfortable with that because initially, you know, it's that whole imposter syndrome that, you know, a lot of us may struggle with. I, I felt like this even when I was at Stanford. Like, oh, my God, how did I get picked? Like, mm. you know, I started questioning my ability. And it was the same thing you know, on Wall Street, feeling like I had to basically have, you know, 
two two personalities like mm-hmm. who I am at work and then who I really am and yes. then how I wear my hair at work versus how I really want to wear my hair right. and I think just over time just becoming more confident and realizing like no I do have value and there I'm not here as a token I'm here because you know I add value to this team mm-hmm. I've gotten a lot more comfortable you know just bringing my whole self to work speaking up and you know people a lot of corporations say that they want diversity Mm-hmm. but it's really a shallow surface level diversity. Yes. It's like, okay, she's black. She checks the box, exactly. but she went to this school. She went, you know, it's not, it's not anything that's, you know, it's not meaningful or sustainable or actually empowering. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it just takes, um, you know, time. And when I started going to these like schools and realizing that, okay, some of these kids are really not that, right you know I mean (laughs) there are a lot of bright people that go there but then there are some people that got in because of you know nepotism or whatever yeah Uh, right exactly it's like okay no like I have something to offer and I'm gonna be myself and I don't care who you know who doesn't like it Mm. okay no absolutely yeah but when I worked there you know I was fortunate I worked with a really great team so um I know I had a few friends, though, who did not have such a great experience. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a common thing. So it's always great to hear experiences, you know, where there are pockets of people who don't have that, who actually do have supportive teams that actually do want to see them thrive. So tell us a little bit more about your business. How did you get started? What is it about? Yeah. Okay, I'll, uh, <laughs> this is my favorite part. <laughs> um, so my company is called uh, Upgrade Boutique, mm-hmm. and we basically are um, a custom wig business. Um, we operate online. However, we have relationships with stylists for our customers who want to um, to get a physical installation of the wig. Mm. The way that it got started is that in working in some of these environments um, that I previously mentioned, Mm. you know, I always felt like I had to come to work with straight hair and my hair is not naturally straight. Mm. And I, I start, I felt like I started getting addicted to weaves. I'm not Mm. there anymore. Like I'm comfortable. Like one day I'll have a weave or a wig in and the next day I'm just fully natural and I'm comfortable in both scenarios. Mm. But um, it took me a while to get to that point. So I was always wearing wig weaves, not really wigs at that point. And it was just so expensive and so time consuming mm-hmm. because before wigs became popular again, I was getting sew-ins. Um, you know, sometimes I would take a personal day from work to get my hair done. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to, to Harvard, which is in Boston and there just, it was very hard for me to find, um, talented stylists. So mm-hmm. a group of us, we would like take a day trip to New York and get our hair done. And I was just thinking like, this is the most ridiculous thing. Yeah, like, there has crazy. to be a better way. <laughs> right. <laughs> there has to be a better way to deliver this service. And so I just started doing more research. Um, I initially partnered with um, a friend who was a stylist. Uh, we're no longer partners, mm. but um, now we have like a net a network of stylists. But The whole premise is that, you know, our mission is to save women of color valuable time and money that is often spent on hair. So Mm -hmm. instead of you having to go sit in a salon for hours, um, you know, or spend a thousand dollars on a high quality wig, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we customize wigs behind the scene. You basically upload the picture of the style 
um, and the and the color job that you want. Mm. Um, we kind of have a size guide on the website, and then we partner with those stylists in the background, and we we can ship it directly to you, and it'll arrive uh, ready to wear. Oh wow! Okay. And how long has this business been running? Um, since June of last year, so almost a year. Okay, fantastic. And then, so for a lot of people, when they are, I mean, a lot of us sit with business ideas, right? Um, So many people, you know, want to be or aspire to be entrepreneurs and to run their own businesses. Um, But for, you know, a majority of the time, the ideas kind of just never move beyond the idea phase, because obviously, the issues of funding come up quite often. So how did you go about getting your business started? Um, so it was a combination. So initially, uh, it was really like bootstrapping, like mm-hmm. me just, you know, investing my own small amounts of money, trying to test out the model. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I re- I got rejected. I, I think I lost count, but definitely over 200 times. Mm-hmm. But I would basically pitch to whoever, like any any person that would listen, I would tell them this idea. And a lot of people, especially the people, the allocators of capital, like they didn't really understand it. You know, it's like it's very niche to them. It's, you know, we're focusing on women of color. It's hair. It's like, okay, is this really a big market? Mm. But I think it was still valuable to have those conversations, even when I got rejected, because I knew how to prepare for what the next person might be concerned about. And so um, I actually entered into like the venture competition um, at school. I didn't win the competition, but I got really positive feedback from the judges. And so that was definitely um, encouraging. And I said, you know, one day I'm going to do this. But mm-hmm. again, I decided to go back to my comfortable job at Shell um, until I just decided, you know, I'm going to I'm going to risk it all. I'm going to try it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, I feel like it was a divine intervention of how everything came together. So uh, when I did the pitch at school, one of my teammates was a friend of mine and she pitched with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think she ever had any intention on actually like joining the business, but it was kind of like, oh, you're doing a pitch competition. I'll help you out. It was, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. So one day I called her and I was like complaining just about my job. I had recently switched teams. I was really unhappy. I felt unfulfilled. Um, whereas I had a very positive experience, um, you know, my first job in, uh, in, on wall street, this particular manager, um, that I was working for at shell, we mm-hmm. did not have the best relationship and it wasn't just he and I, I mean, a lot of the other team members felt the same way. Like two of my team members had, um, resigned like shortly before I did. And it just wasn't a pleasant situation. Mm. So, um, you know, my friend, she was like, well, why, why are you still there? Like, what's keeping you there? And I was like, well, you know, I'm not like you. Like, I, you know, if I don't have a job, I'm not going to be okay. Like, mm. <laughs> you know, mm. some people can just quit their job and you can rely on savings. Yes. You know, I have people in my family that depend on me. So I was really afraid to take the risk. And she said, well, what would it take for you to just, like, try it? Because I don't want you to live with regret. And I said, well, definitely startup capital because you know I don't have enough to get started Mm. and her and her husband they were my first uh, angel investors Mm. and this was a classmate so once um, I got the funding from her I think I think the hardest part is just getting the first person to believe in you Mm. 
because then, you know, it's easier to market it to other people. It's like, oh, well, you've raised some money and you've done some tests to validate the concept mm-hmm. and you just have more more data, more, uh, you know, more proof of concept. And it just helps other people get comfortable. Mm-hmm. The VC world, though, was completely different. Um, it, it's still pretty difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for women of color, um, even if you go to the quote unquote right schools, it still can be a very insular world. Mm. Um, whereas I've seen a lot of white males that get funded just because they have an idea. Yeah. It's like black women, you have to go out and you have to prove, yeah. you know, you have to prove that there's a demand. You have to go generate some money and then we'll invest in you. And, you know, it's really unfair, mm. but I'm hoping that, you know, as more people, um, more of us become investors and kind of change the way that that world operates Mm. or at least understand it better that you know we'll have more opportunities to get vc funding and for somebody who has never um either heard about um venture capital or how it works what has what what was it how how would you explain the process to somebody how do you identify potential um investors um and you know how how do you package your concept in a way that is attractive to them. Okay. So identifying potential investors, I think that that's the hardest part um, because again, it's a very insular world and sometimes you need somebody like you need somebody to make an introduction for Mm. you. And that's the thing that I don't like about it. Mm. I'm still trying to learn, you know, how to navigate, but it's not impossible. I think, um, you know, I started just, cold calling people not cold calling but cold emailing Mm. like here's my pitch this is you know i'm trying to raise funding for this idea and basically here it is i mean you have to do a lot of research you have to you know you have to search for companies that are funds that invest in the type of company that you want to launch and then Mm. there are different there are investors that invest in different stages so you have some people that invest like early early seed or pre-seed that's like before you've generated you know a certain amount of revenue mm. and then you have like late stage investors so you really have to kind of map out who the players are mm. in the area that you're you know you're wanting to secure capital mm. um i think it's easier if you're doing um a tech business uh, is just, you know, VC funds love tech because mm-hmm. they think it's easier to scale. Yeah. In my case, doing something which initially didn't start off as tech. Initially, there was like this brick and mortar component. And so that was already like a big, you know, Deterrent red flag for, for a lot of yeah. investors. Yeah. Yeah. Because initially I pitched it as like a dry bar for custom wigs. And I saw we were not getting a lot of traction <laughs> with that. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know what? Let me let me dig deeper and see how we can pivot this a little to make it more attractive for investors. But it actually ended up being attractive for, for consumers too. As far as the, the what you want to include in the pitch, um, you definitely want to identify the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm. So don't think of it as just I want to start this company. No, you need to identify this is the problem, and this is how many people it affects, and this is what I'm trying to solve. Mm. Then you go into more detail on the solution. You need to also research, like, how big is the the target market? So because VCs, they want to invest in something that has the potential to scale. So if it's just a problem that's only going to – a solution that's only going to help a small amount of people, you know, then you're reducing your chances of securing an investment. But if it's something that 
I mean, even if it's women of color, that's still a large number of people. If you can show that, mm. okay, 40 or 50 percent of the women in this category, you know, have this same problem. Right. Um, in addition to that, um, you want to provide. Um, uh, so one of the issues that I ran into is that I'm used to putting decks together for Wall Street. And so it was a lot of like numbers and text and i found that with the vc world um they were less interested in like some of the smaller details with the numbers they just want to see the potential for growth so really focusing in on the revenue potential um and maybe like the unit economics so mm-hmm. you know how much profit is there in one um sale that you mm-hmm. make it's you know you don't have to go as detailed as if you were building out something um you know, if you're working on Wall Street, I would say. Mm. Um, and then also just pictures. I mean, that really helped uh, because I had to educate these mostly like white males mm. on like the pain point that black women were facing. And I found that when I removed some of the text and just put in pictures or schematics of like, OK, this is the process. This is what we have to go through to get our hair done a certain way. And this is what I envision the process to be. Um, that really went a long way. Mm. Okay. And then in terms of, I mean, obviously a key component when you are running your own business is firstly, obviously identifying your target audience, but then comes the marketing. How have you managed to break into the market? Yeah. So we've relied very heavily on, um, social media, primarily Instagram, Mm. um, which is great because, you know, it's it's free unless you do Instagram ads, which can be very um, useful as well. Mm. Um, we haven't really used uh, a lot of marketing outside of in, uh, outside of Instagram. I made one like one, I would say mistake. I didn't. I did a radio campaign, and we didn't get any traction with that. Mm. So um, since then, I've really just kind of focused in on social media and letting the the wigs kind of speak for themselves. We've had a, a lot of our wigs. I wouldn't say go viral, but, you know, we've gotten a lot of likes. And then if we see that something is really um, something has a lot of engagement, then we'll promote it on Instagram or Facebook. And that's our primary uh, mechanism for marketing right now. Okay, and now with the whole world trying to grapple with, you know, COVID-19 and the various ways that it's been impacting businesses of all sizes all over the world. How, what has the impact been like for your business? Um, so there's been, I would say a positive and a negative. The negative mm-hmm. is of course, we've had a decline in sales just because, you know, consume people are losing their jobs and, you know, if you're losing your job here, it's not going to be the biggest priority. Mm-hmm. Um, on the, the positive side, I would say that it's given us the opportunity to really build out the e-commerce platform. Mm. So I think I mentioned initially our product and service was, was integrated. So you would buy the wig, you could come in and get it installed. Mm. Since um, COVID-19, we've really focused more on the e-commerce platform and mm. just having stylists work from home because, you know, we had to shut the salon down. Mm. So stylists were working from home and we were just shipping wigs ready to wear to customers. Mm. And since we've seen that, okay, this, this actually works, uh, we've decided to invest more heavily into that part of the model. Mm. 
And do you only ship to the US or do you ship to other geographies as well? No, we ship worldwide. Okay. So I would love to ship you a wig, actually, so you can test it out. Please, uh, actually, I've never worn a wig in my life, so I would love to try one. <laughs> I'm more just like, I don't know if this would work for me. It's actually quite anxiety-inducing for me because I see, I see people like wearing yeah. wigs, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's so dope. I would love to try something like that because I have, I have natural hair. I've got this whole Afro thing going on, but, you know, natural uh -huh. hair is so much work. And sometimes I honestly want to be able to wake up and just put something on and just get out the door. Um, so I would absolutely love that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, after the call, we'll have to. I'll have to get your address. Um, but yeah, and that's the pain point for a lot of our customers, right? Because mm -hmm. you know, in recent years, it's become more trendy to be natural, right. and so with becoming natural you know it, it just requires more time spent on your hair and mm -hmm. I think being natural is a beautiful thing but sometimes like you said you just want to get up and go and so it's so convenient to just have a wig that's natural looking like no one is gonna say oh she's wearing a wig you know mm -hmm. it looks natural um but it's you know it's a very convenient option and even for like women who live like very active lifestyles there was a study that I read that showed that like a lot of black women sometimes we compromise you know, our exercise, physical activity, because we mm. want to preserve our hair. Like if you just gotten your hair straightened, you don't want to go to the gym yeah, and sweat yeah. it out. Yeah. And so with the, yeah. And so with the glueless wigs that we offer, it kind of alleviates that concern because you can go work out, you can sweat and, you know, wash your own hair and then just slip the wig right back on. Mm. So, yeah. It sounds absolutely amazing. So one of the other conversations that are, are kind of trending everywhere at the moment as everybody tries to figure what life is going to be like after the coronavirus is around what the future of business is um, and whether businesses will still be relevant going into the future or how do we reimagine what our businesses can look like in the future. What do you think is or lies in the future for your business? Where do you see yourself taking it? Um, so with my business specifically, I definitely want to expand. So right now, uh, most of the stylists that, um, that we work with are based in Houston. I want to develop a global network of stylists that, you know, have the talent and the capability to create these flawless wigs. And I think it just expands our reach uh, mm -hmm. for customers worldwide. I also want to invest in, in training and more like, um, safety net programs for stylists a mm. lot of stylists you know they get paid in cash a mm. lot of them don't have uh retirement benefits mm. or even health insurance so um i've actually been exploring ways to create uh, a group where um, stylists can benefit you know from from being connected to a network and access more like healthcare benefits mm. so things of that nature um i also want to invest in more like professional development for uh for stylists. Mm -hmm. I've encountered a lot of stylists who are very talented, mm -hmm. but lack soft skills, lack, you know, professionalism. And right. it's not that it's intentional, it's that they have not been taught, yes. you know? So that's definitely something I also want to explore. But big business in general, I think after COVID-19, I'm hoping that there will be a lot of changes. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see a lot of businesses um, allow 
workers to work from home mm. and that they've seen that I think that um, I think I saw something that said like productivity actually increases, which I, I, yeah, I mean, that that's pretty cool. Um, I saw that Twitter just announced the Twitter CEO just announced that um, their um, employees can permanently work from home now. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's amazing. Um, I also think, um, you know, in the U S um, the companies are really ran on what's best for the shareholder, what's best mm, for the owners, you yeah, know? Same here. And I think we have to change to a model of what's better for all the stakeholders. Yes. You have to consider the employees, the owners, the, the community, yeah. you know, the customers. Mm. And I think that those things should be given equal consideration. Absolutely. Um, or else you end up in situations where you know, the rich get richer and the poor get poor yeah. and there's just this growing divide, you know, mm. and that's not sustainable. Absolutely. So I definitely, I definitely think that COVID-19 could be the catalyst for mm. making that change. At least I'm, I'm hopeful mm-hmm. that that's the case. Um, so yeah, I think those are two big changes that, uh, that I'm hoping to see with mm. businesses going forward. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. Um, and I think, you know, interestingly from, from a, I mean, I'm thinking about my own, the hair salon that I go to <laughs> and how they have had to, and even the, the, my nail technician, you know, they're in a, because of everything that's going on with, with COVID-19 and not being able to operate, they have to think about different ways to still be able to make money because obviously they don't have any safety nets, you know, they don't have right. any savings. They could have never imagined that they need to prepare for something like this and so they're having to start thinking about okay people can buy vouchers you know so that they get some cash flow coming in and then you can use the voucher whenever the lockdown has is over you know Um, right right yeah i saw a lot of stylists doing that yeah it's it's very sad because you know a lot of people don't and it's not even that they it's laziness or an unwillingness to do so people just don't know that they need to be thinking about different scenarios in order to protect themselves and their businesses exactly yeah i mean if you're used to being able to just wake up and you know do hair and make money in that same day and and we've never really had anything like this happen before Mm. so um, it's definitely a wake up call, and I don't think it's just limited to stylists. I mean, mm. I think this was a wake up call for everyone. For everyone. Yeah, um, absolutely. Every industry was impacted, you know, mm. unless you're like Amazon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're doing great. We're buying everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my gosh, this has been such an amazing conversation, but and also so interesting because I mean. We hear so much about, you know, business funding and venture capitalism, but it always seems like such an intimidating topic to go into because it always seems so exclusive and so white, you know, and it never, yeah. it's never really felt yeah. like a space that is welcoming to, to black bodies and particularly black women. So it's really been amazing right. to hear the perspective and experiences of a black woman who's gone through that process and is able to share, you know, your own experiences that people can learn from and be able to apply to their own ideas so that we can start seeing more black people and people of color coming into the space and getting that funding and are seeing these businesses out there. Oh, yes, I would love that. And there are... Um... 
in the in the last few years, there have been a few funds that have been launched with a specific mandate to invest in minority-owned businesses. Mm. Um, two that come to mind, uh, one is called Backstage Capital, and one is called Harlem Capital. And I think um, you can even tell that the approach is different. I know mm. for Harlem Capital, for example, they have their contact information like listed on the site, you know, mm. and that's just not very common for, you know, for VC funds. So there, I mean, it's still a space where, you know, that needs a lot of improvement so that we can access more funding, but mm. I can see that, you know, the small changes are being made. Um, and so we just kind of have to ride the wave until we have more people on the opposite ends of the table making those decisions. Absolutely. So for people who are interested in your wigs, where can they get get in touch with you? Um, So they can check us out on our website, which is UpgradeBoutique.com or on Instagram at The Upgrade Boutique. Okay, perfect. Brittany, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and I wish you nothing but the best with your business and incredible growth for the future. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining us for another episode of The Workplace Revolution with me, Sile Bolani. I will see you again next time. Mm-hmm.